Hello there, listener. Thank you for listening to the Crash MotoGP podcast, where each week we will bring you the latest news from the world of MotoGP. Now, don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts from so you never miss an episode. The podcast is also available in video format on our YouTube channel. Head over to Crash MotoGP so you can watch us there. Make sure to like the video. And also, while you're down there, make sure to click the subscribe button. For all the latest news, head to Christ.net and also follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We hope you enjoy the show. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. On the show today, your questions answered. We're going through and clearing out the Crash MotoGP inbox to get anything and everything answered. And there really is a massive wide variety of questions to go through so we'll dive straight in shall we the recording day is tuesday the 30th of may my name is harry benjamin as always crash motor gp editor pete mclaren is here and former grand prix rider and british champion keith hewin uh, let's start question number one shall we of of uh, i don't know about 150 uh nelson asks i'm a huge fan of the pod thanks nelson and i sit so patiently each and every week to listen As the popularity of F1 has only been exploding here in the US with the additions of Miami and Las Vegas coming in, do we think the US will add another Grand Prix on the MotoGP calendar? Do you think the US would need an American rider on the grid to get behind that and possibly justify it? What do you reckon, Keith? I reckon that it's on the move in America. Moto America, Wayne Rainey's series, if you want to call it that is emerging now isn't it it's it's got reasonable back and it's had a little it's had two or three years behind it now so it's on the move um whether the, it comes down to money again and motor gp business model isn't the same as f1 f1 has exploded in recent months years purely and simply because of their online presence and the fact that you know they're they're multimedia the digital side their digital platform has become so good the drive to survive um situation has been fantastic for formula one and as i've said so many times before on this pod it's uh formula one is 50 percent for for fans of formula one and the, the tech heads and 50 percent of people who want to be seen there and that makes a massive difference and americans with respect seem to be a little bit that way inclined they want to be among winners they want to be seen at the big event we're a bit more reticent like that in the uk aren't we we're not sort of we're all a bit you know dour in comparison i think to the hee-hawing and whooping American that's jumping about somewhere in uh, the circuit of the Americas just to be seen under an American flag in the middle of an event. Um, it's It really is the, the TikTok bloody Instagram paradise that um, that people like in Formula One. We don't have that in GP. God knows why, because it's, well, dare I say it, from a, from a spectacle point of view, it's a better sport. You know, if you're, you're into watching a sport, I mean, I watched Monaco at the weekend, Mate, I'd love to be sat on a boat in Monaco, but I'd be asleep watching that. You know, it, well, the it rain probably, came down. It was probably one of the more exciting Monacos as well. But the fact of the matter is, is that it was still very, very dull if you compare it with a MotoGP race. Yeah. Um, and 
based on that very fact, we ought to have a much bigger social media pro uh, presence, in my view. Uh, and we don't. And I think that would appeal to the Americans. Until we get to the point where we've got it right on that selling feature, that unique selling point, the USP of MotoGP, we're not really increasing the numbers. It's only really Le Mans that's, that shocked us all at the moment with the, with the amount of people at, at trackside. Um, and that is because it is a hands-on event and the promoter is brilliant at getting that type of people ring-fenced inside the circuit for a great event. Not everyone's cup of tea, though, I've got to say. Yeah, you've got to take your hat off to Formula One, haven't you? Because the track action, to my mind, as someone who's a very casual viewer, hasn't really changed in the last, I don't know, 10 years. But the fan base, fantastic, isn't it? it, it you can see it's got visibly bigger. People are talking about it. It's in the mainstream newspapers more, TV, that kind of thing. So, yeah, as, as he says, when you've got the, the show that's there in MotoGP on the track, you think, well, why can't we get more of that off it? Because, as you say, Keith, it is about money, isn't it? And uh, a lot of the new new tracks that we see are government-backed, aren't they? The new Grand Prix that come on the calendar, they're government-backed. And that's not going to happen in America, is it, really? It's not, you can't really rely on that, let's say. I mean, you can hope to try and get some budget from some local maybe sports authority or something like that but by and large it's not going to be like you know the the thai grand prix is backed by the thai government or the malaysian grand prix or india that's coming on those kind of things where you've got high up government support for a major gp event and that's what that's really the easiest way to make things happen as far as an event isn't it if you want what's the best way to get a motor gp, GP event happening a new motor gp event that's the way you'd want to do it so it's not going to be easy to do that anywhere in, in america or even Western Europe really now. So you've got to look at getting the money in other ways. And that's, as Keith says, getting the people on board. America is such a big country. Maybe you could, you know, there's certainly room for it, isn't there, geographically, but it's having that interest, having someone that comes along that can believe in the sport and make the numbers add up. I mean, Laguna Seca, fantastic track, but, you know, could you make it happen there again? I don't know. But, uh, you know, for Nelson's question, we'd all love to see another event in America that's certainly big enough it would justify it. But uh, fortunately, it's... Uh, comes down to the boring numbers game again and we tend and we're tending to move towards you know asia you know mm -hmm. the asian market where millions and millions of people are motorcyclists there's miles more cars in america than there are bikes of course and america has never been a great road scene it's been an off-road scene it's been a it's been motocross it's been you know dirt track it's been more of a an off-road scene than it's ever been a tarmac type scene um you know you've got alabama you know the, the track at alabama great little track but you, and with a great museum and a great bike following, but Barber Motorsport Park is never, ever going to really be a Grand Prix track either. But there you go. And it's a bit like the UK track-wise. There's a lot of tracks in America that are great to ride on and great to go and watch at, but they're not safe mm. to Grand Prix standard. Well, uh, you bring up uh, the UK. Thank you, Nelson, for that question. Uh, Tufty from Northern Ireland uh, has uh, asked this. My question uh, is, apart from Jake Dixon and Sam Lowe's, where do you see the British or the next British MotoGP rider coming from? We've produced so many great riders over the years, but there seems to be a lack of British talent being promoted or talked about at the moment. Superbike has so many great British riders, yet MotoGP has none since Crutchlow retired. Interesting in hearing your thoughts on the matter. P.S. Keith did a brilliant job with this year's Northwest 200 commentary. Loved every minute. Maybe we should send Glenn Irwin to MotoGP. That would spice things up a bit. Yeah, he didn't like it much when we were at a dinner one night and uh, I was up on stage with uh, Stephen Watson from BBC Northern Ireland and uh, Stephen asked me what my prediction was for the race and I said Alistair Seeley. That went down like a, 
proverbial lead brick. <laughs> <laughs> and then my next interview was Glenn Irwin. So of it was good fun. Pete. It's so difficult. Isn't it? I mean, we're not the only ones. We should say the Brits. The Germans are asking the same thing. I mean, just to, just to, it's, it's not just a British thing that, uh, you know, it was Stefan Bradl and, and Jonas Volk were both at a race because they were replacements this year, weren't they? And Bradl said, look, I, I can't see where the next German MotoGP ride is coming from. So th- th- this is the case for a lot of countries out there. We've got uh, in the UK, the, 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 the difference or the, the unique thing is, as you, as you highlight with the question there, the superbike, you know, presence and, and the background is so strong. And yet, as we know, it's very difficult to get across. And it comes, in a way, a bit back to American riders. They're also very strong in superbikes, as we've seen over the years, haven't we? But again, it's trying to get countries that have a background in superbike racing, super sport racing, to make that move over to MotoGP, uh, rather than coming up on pocket bikes and, and the whole Grand Prix uh, ladder as they do in, in Europe. Keith. That's You just hit the nail on the head there with the pocket bike situation. Um, you know, I've been doing a bit of research on this over the last week or so when we spoke about the, the, the women's series and so on and, and so forth and kids coming through and now we haven't got the big pond that we need to pick um, some of these quick riders from like they have in Italy, like they have in Spain. And it's a complete mess in this country. In the UK, I'm talking here. Um, sorry if you're further afield and um, don't have the same problem if you're lucky enough not to have the same problem. But our ACU, the, the Order Cycle Union as is, um, don't seem to want to get involved. They kind of seem to be right in the background. And, you know, that reminds me of Homer disappearing in that hedge when you mentioned sort of youngsters. They stay well away from the contentious issue of getting involved in something that might cause them a pain down the road. And the reason I say that is because when you've got youngsters riding on motorcycles of any size, that can be an issue that, that there's going to be some litigation or some kind of trauma later on in, in because motorbike racing at any level can be dangerous. Um, and you can't always you know, mitigate against that. No real tracks in this country. I've tried to follow up on the Silverstone track. You may remember that we talked about the new kart track that they're building there, and I've already spoken to Stuart Pringle, their managing director, about youngsters and the pool of youngsters. Will you will this track be used for minibike racing, like some kart tracks are? Um, and he definitely thought about it. But since then, having looked into it a bit further, and I think Silverstone's probably done the same thing, is damage done to cart tracks through motorbikes falling off, you know, with their foot pegs gouging the tarmac and the like, has a costly um, consequence to running bikes on a cart track. And if it's a whatever the grade A karting Grand Prix track would be homologation-wise, which you presume Silverstone will be going for when they do eventually, they haven't signed it off yet, still not done. Um, when they do eventually get to do that car, to have a load of motorbikes running around there and gouging great big chunks out the tarmac, that's a problem. On the big track, if you get a car accident that gouges a big chunk out of the tarmac, or a track day where you've got a motorbike that's thrown up the road and it gouges a chunk out of the... That tarmac has to be fixed. If you're a Formula One you know, track, um, there are certain things that you have to do to make sure that track is in pristine condition. So the cost element is quite high. Then you come to licensing. The reason why we have so many pocket bikes on on cart tracks is because those cart tracks don't have an ACU license. There's no, no licensing. You don't need a license to go to for your youngster to go riding around most of these cart tracks. Whereas that would change, presumably, if if we were running on affiliated tracks. So there's a, a massive black hole in the UK as to what any organizer, anybody can really do 
to organise these pocket races. Peter Hickman runs a series for a, a, an academy. Laverty is, is obviously a man that we've looked at with academies. Um, there are other people out there that are, that are quite astute when it comes to running these small academies, but there's nothing joined up, is what I'm trying to say in a very long way. There's no coordinated effort to make sure that our youngsters, if their parents or, or themselves, are keen to go mini bike racing, there doesn't seem to be an overarching safe environment, both track-wise, licensing-wise, insurance-wise, to get them involved. That seems to be a, a real disaster from my perspective. I'm going to find out more what happens in Italy, for instance. You know, you've got all those areas around where Valentina Rossi lives, of course, where they've got pocket racing tracks all over the place. Now, are they licensed? What's the situation? Are they just freelance? You just turn up and run what you've brung and have a great time? I wonder what it is as far as their stepladder is concerned into, um, you know, professional racing. We need to find out. Somebody needs to find out. Because we don't seem to be doing it quite right here in the UK for females or for males at that point, or anybody in between. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, well, Tufty, thank you for bringing that up. Thank you for your question. And actually, on the subject of tracks as well, talking about American new tracks uh, and the well, the many tracks that we have here in the UK, but the ones that aren't quite usable. Tony asks, greeting, uh, greetings from sunny Croatia. Nice to listen to your podcast. I have a question uh, for Keith because he was there at the time. What about Grobnik? racetrack in Croatia, then the Yugoslavian GP, built especially for MotoGP in 1978 and was on the calendar every year uh, in mid-June till the Yugoslav War started in 1990. The last winner was rainy in front of Schwantz. Proper bike uh, racetrack Grobnik is now freshly resurfaced with new tarmac. Adriatic coast is warm uh, and full of motorbikes, uh, but interest in the Balkan side of it doesn't seem to be quite uh, there at the moment with MotoGP. Fantastic area, Croatia, anyway. I mean, like, you're right, the Yugoslavian Grand Prix. I, I did race in the Yugoslavian Grand Prix at, um, just outside Rijeka. God, you um, are old, aren't you? Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I'm really proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> I had a good life and it continues that way. And it, it, But it makes you sad sometimes when you, even with age and knowledge and, and still that little bit of aggression that I have, you still can't make things happen sometimes. And they're done for reasons why, you know, when you're younger, you think, why the hell that? It seems obvious that you should be doing this, you know, in Croatia. It's a beautiful place. Why, why are we not, why are we not racing in, um, in the former Yugoslavia now Croatia and all those other, you know, Balkan states around there that they have beautiful roads, beautiful places to stay, beautiful places to eat. You can access it by plane, boat, road, any way you want to. Um, the problem is the market has moved. You know, the market has moved. Dorna's market has moved at the end of the day. It's gone, you know, further east. Um, you know, the interest in Europe, you know, it comes down to European riders, European tracks, European pocket mini bikes. you know. None of it is being catered for um, as well as it should be. And other places have picked up the, the pace on that. And, and the, the funding, as Pete's already said, that you get from governments in so many different racetracks now, you know, Sepang, there's no way that Sepang would be Sepang if it hadn't had a fair amount of money come into it, either from Patronus or other places as well. I mean, commercial money as well in there. Um, you just can't do it. It is just huge. Silverstone. Silverstone is, is 15 minutes from my house. I have many conversations about Silverstone. And you just think, how on earth do they survive on, a, on an annual basis? If it wasn't for Formula One, I suspect they wouldn't survive. They've had to sell off so much land around. I mean, just take the car parks. I mean, we all complain about the car parks. But 
most of those car parks outside Silverstone don't belong anymore to Silverstone. They, they were sold off ages ago um, for various you know, reasons. And it just makes it impossible to, to do something at a reasonable, reasonable price. And I think that as Dorna and, and the, the organizations have moved further to the east, where there is still a bit of money and a bit of interest for motorcycling, um, and uh, Sepang is probably a, a good example. I mean, Sepang dumped F1 for MotoGP, allegedly. That's what I was led to believe. They let F1 go for MotoGP because in that region, MotoGP is a big one. It's a big seller. And there's a cap there. You have to remember as well, it's a financial cap to, to people who can go to races. You know, you can't charge 300 quid for a, you know, a ticket for a guy that lives in Malaysia because a normal family just cannot afford that kind of level. So, you know, Formula One probably had a cap on it anyway, unless you flew in. I mean, the good thing. That's the other thing. Sepang, 15 minutes from the airport. You just go around the block. As you fly in, you can see the race circuits. You're flying in. You know, we have, you know, Brands Hatch. Brands Hatch was safer. That place would be rammed forever. Just down the road from the London conurbation. Money. It's all about the money. It all comes down to money, Pete, as well. But it's not just this. I remember in the news the last week, uh, Valtteri Bottas thinking of reviving uh, the Kimi ring in, in, in Finland as well. So so that could be something on the cards. But again, they're bankrupt and no money. Well, they've kind of halfway got there, haven't they? They, they got a bit further than the circuit of Wales, which was just a map. Um, mm. So it was one of those ones where... I always wonder why people with huge amounts of money don't do better for the greater good. <laughs> You know, that goes, you can spread that out to everything you want to spread it out to. Why do we have homeless people? Why do we have things like this, that, and the other? And the same thing with racetracks. Why do we have, why don't, why don't people that have massive influence and massive money do a bit more for the sports and the regimes that have probably earned them that money in the first place? So good on Valtteri. Yeah. yeah thanks, <laughs> good on thanks Pete. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> wait. wait. I mean, as you say, the Kimi was a classic example, wasn't it, of just the money situation, wasn't it? That was the, as you say, the track was built. Okay, there was a bit of concern about the layout of the track because it was a bit tight and that kind of thing. But it was built. There was a racetrack there and and they had a test. There's some test riders there and everything else. But the money, you know, if the money's not there, it can't happen. And, uh, you know, they had a deal with Dorna, let's say, or an intention to join the MotoGP calendar, even with that, it's, it, it, it's so difficult, isn't it? It's so difficult to put on a new event in Europe or any Western country these days. The reasons that, that Keith mentioned, you know, you go to Asia, you've got the, the, the double whammy, if you like, of all of the motorbike sales and the big crowds. So, you know, you've got both sides of the equation. Whereas in, in Western Europe, we, you know, we haven't got the big motorcycle sales. We can still get the big crowd sometimes, but the bike sales are not there. I think India is now the and, and no coincidence, we're going to India. India is now the, um, I heard at the, the last Grand Prix I was at, I think it's the biggest motorbike market in the world now. It's gone up, overtaken Indonesia. So that's where we're going. I mean, it is very hard if you're not, if you haven't got something, you know, either the big market for the bikes or the massive crowd that will buy all the tickets. But like both of those things, ideally, it's, it's a struggle now, mm. isn't it? We'll all be riding Royal Enfield soon, Indian ones. <laughs> that's where Harris Performance went. You know, Harris Performance were bought by. Royal Enfield, which is an Indian company. So Stephen yeah. Lester Harris and Steve Bayford, the three three men behind Harris Performance, originally did extra chassis for um, for Royal Enfield. You know, we're, we're tweaking their chassis for their, their new brands and stuff like that. So Royal Enfield, which is an old British name that is now Indian, um, had the benefit of uh, mm. 
the Harris Performance Touch. I um I was stuck on the uh, the M25 over the weekend, and I was just thinking it came to my, it came to my thoughts. A couple of motorcycles went by me, and I just thought, God, I should I should get a motorcycle bike like like license because then I'd be there in a heartbeat. I wouldn't be having these anxious issues about trying to get through in the traffic. So. I need to buy no, one. you have a whole load of other issues when you try and get through the traffic, like idiots trying to knock you off. <laughs> <laughs> That's also some of them did come very close to my stationary car, and yeah. I was like, "Oh, hello, <laughs> sorry." Uh, anyway, let's. Uh, we had a few voice note questions come in, so let's uh, let's go to them now. Uh, first of all, we got a, a a question from Phil. Hi guys, so my question is: um, Barry Baltus in Moto Two has a very Joey the Lob helmet. I was wondering if it's based on that or if it's not, if that's completely random. Uh, as I'm sure you can tell by my accent, I have a real connection to Joey. So, yeah, yeah. Cheers. Love the podcast and keep up the good work. Everybody has a connection to Joey. Doesn't matter whether <laughs> yeah. you come from Ulster or not. Now, if it is a connection, and I don't know, to be honest. I mean, Barry Baltus, you know, with a name like Barry, you've got to think that he's got a link there somewhere as well, <laughs> haven't you, really? There's, there's, there's one or two that... Uh, have got uh, tenuous links to, uh, to old races and the like. But, you know, when it comes to helmet design, you couldn't get one much simpler than a yellow hat with a bit of black masking tape from front to back. I mean, that was Joey. It was just perfect, straight over the top. You knew exactly who it was. Um, but again, it comes down to marketing and, and moving on, you know, new helmet designs, a bit like in football where they change the shirt, kit, kit designs every other year or whatever it might be. Just because you can sell them on, it's all about marketing new product and uh, getting that turnover gone. But whether it it was a, a nod to Joey, let's hope so. Because if it is, then then Barry Baltus is bloody has gone up in my estimations even further. If that's the case, you can't beat a bit of history. You speak to some riders, and you wouldn't think that they know the kind of history they do about people like Joey Dunlop. You would think that there would be, apart from the the fact that you know he was the king of the roads as was back in the day and and the way that he was you know as a charitable fellow and and the like when uh, and the country he lost his life in as well that um, there are is a lot more to joey dunlop than i think has ever been written um and i wonder why that is why it hasn't why we don't have a joey dunlop film there you go you should make it keith <laughs> I tell you, you need a translation with Joey. If he hadn't been talking to us for for more than you needed to, Joey to sort of get into the slightly more anglicised uh, uh, English than Bella Money, um, because it was it was very hard to understand him when he was amongst his own, shall we say? <laughs> Slowly but surely, you tuned in and he came back to you. He was a brilliant, brilliant man, and. Obviously exceptional in what he what he did, and a massive loss to uh, Northern Ireland particularly, but of course the rest of the world as well. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know for sure either. Let's hope it is. I mean, it'd be great if it was. He wouldn't be the first, would he? Remember Roberto Rolfo? Uh, he he put on a Joey Dunlop uh, replica helmet. I know, I think for the the British friend at Donington Park a few years back, and maybe some other races. So, yeah, you know, there's there's obviously as he says, there's a lot of history there on the continent that people. Yeah, they are big fans of him, and uh, yeah, that'd be great. I, I'll I'll try and find that out. There you go. Pete's got some homework to do. Um, let's go <laughs> to Steve next. Hello, Steve. Guys, Steve from Victoria, Australia, or as Keith likes to call it, the nanny state. Uh, my question is in regards to Jack Miller. It seems as though over his GP career, Jack seems to qualify well, go to the front early in races, and then fade to finish just inside the top 10. 
often citing tyre issues. Uh, do you guys think this is a fair assessment? And Keith, is this something that can be changed? If so, how? And not a criticism of Jack, guys. Just interested to hear thoughts. Keep up the good work. Jack's a great rider and a great personality. And he still seems to be working it out at the minute. And I mean, basically jumped on that KTM now, um, which makes a difference again because there's a whole new learning curve. Um, tire wear, it's just such a tiny nuance in your weapon of talent that you've got to have. It is the hardest thing when you can't quite go back to Danny Pedroza, couldn't quite make the front work, go back to one or two other riders, couldn't make the rear work. And if you're on a Yamaha, when the fuel load went down, front don't work one way and rear don't work in the other way once the fuel moves. It is just a, the tiniest differences. Jack will work it out because despite the fact he seems like he's, a, you know, Jack the lad, um, he's a clever bloke and he knows what he's got to do and he will be working around it. I think he will get there. Um, KTM's still pretty new to him anyway. The other thing you've got to remember is there's, there's so little time. To, to, to get these things done, to, to, you know, very few riders in the course of a weekend get a lot of laps in, in one run nowadays. There's no time for it. You've got, you know, P1, P2, which is really qualifying <laughs> all the way through. You've got, you've got no session that isn't a qualifying session nowadays to get somewhere to, to, to be in the best position as far as um, the grip position is concerned. And, you know, and grip position is everything and isn't everything. You know, if you've got a fast motorbike over one lap, that's great, but it isn't going to do you any good over 23 or whatever it is, like we've got coming up in Magello. It's, um, I think he'll get there, Jack will. I definitely think Jack will get there. And I think the, the people around him at KTM are smart, they're clever, they're, they're working towards it. Um, they've got, you know, Binder is not a million miles away, differential-wise, with, with how aggressively he rides a motorbike, but yet gently, how he, how he keeps a rear tyre into towards the end of it. I think that, the, the data that everyone's gathering as a huge group will benefit Jack, and I think he will get around it eventually. Yeah, yeah I, th I think that the question was absolutely spot on in terms of Jack's time at Ducati. That was what you would hear from Ducati, that that was the area where Jack needs to work on. The big question, as Keith says, is what happens now at KTM? Different bike. Jack's already says he can slide the bike more than he could at Ducati, where it didn't like, you know, it liked being wheels in line more. Uh, maybe that's the area thing again, who knows, but the KTM, you can slide it more. And we've seen that with Brad Binder, haven't we? And uh, as Keith says also, the, the tyre performance thing is such a tricky one. I mean, on the one hand, you could say, oh, well, maybe Jack works the tyres harder. But then that same skill, if you like, comes into play when he goes out there on a damp track and is instantly fast and instantly on the pace. So, you know, maybe, you know, that what, what works in one situation can work against you in another. It all depends on the weather and the, the type of conditions. And uh, but it certainly wouldn't be a coincidence if, you know, we know Jack is phenomenal when there's dodgy conditions and it's a bit wet and everyone else is a bit cautious and he's just flat out and finding the grip. But then maybe on days when it's baking hot, having finding that grip and working the tyres harder might, might sort of work against him a bit. I mean, it's such a tricky one, but Ski says we're five races in at KTM, and the point is he's already up there fighting for the podium. So I think it's all looking good for Jack, to be honest. And if you live in the nanny state, don't get fined. <laughs> You've been warned, Steve. You've been warned. Thank you for your question. Uh, let's head back to uh, to Keith's neck of the wood and uh, our good friend Dean. Now, Dean, I've split your question in half because the first part of it we have already answered in a previous podcast, but this is all about Fabio. The second part of the question is about Fabio Quattararo and his poor performance recently, and the fact he's reverting now back to like a 2021 setup. 
Hmm. Okay, guys, have a great day. Let me know what you think. Yeah, well, I think you've really answered your own question. The fact he's going back to 2021 or even 2022, you know, setups is, is never a good thing. When you're trying to find that default uh, position that you want to start your weekend on, you know, when you roll the bike out the truck, jump on it and stick the first few laps on, as a rider, you really know almost immediately what kind of motorbike you've got under you. It's a great feeling when it feels dead good and you're pushing your luck already in them first few minutes. Um, conversely, of course, it's when you get on it and you think, what the frigging hell am I going to do with this? Um, and multiply that by the fact that that everybody is so close now. So to be a tenth or two off means you are going to be you know halfway down the grid. Compound that with frustration, which is where we're at with Crotteraro now. I think that he's not in the mood anymore for any of this. He's He's properly unhappy with the way it's going um and and quite bizarre i think comments that are coming out of some high up personnel really with regards to where yamaha are going to be i I see that that there's even been fairly official from lynn himself the uh, managing director of yamaha has actually come out lynn jarvis with um uh the odd comment to say that, you know, they're definitely going forward that, you know, they, they can see that the future in Yamaha, rah, 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 rah. it's all these kind of corporate comments, but nothing really that's looking very positive from a racing motorcycle point of view or from extending their, their team effort on track or in testing. It's bizarre. I, I don't know what to make of Yamaha, but you can be fairly sure that Quattararo's mood isn't going to improve. And I doubt if it's going to improve any more in Mugello either. I think it just underlines the head scratching at the moment of how to move forward, doesn't it? I mean, Quattro was slower this year in qualifying at Le Mans and in the race time than he was last year. And that's no, no rider likes to go slower anyway, do they? But he wasn't the only one. This is well, the ex Suzuki guys, they, they were in the same position. People might have seen this in the, the story on Crash. But, you know, the, uh, Rins and uh, Mia didn't match the times they did in qualifying on the Suzuki last year um, and, and were a long way off, about a second off. Um, whereas the pole time only changed by about a quarter of a second, just to put it in perspective. But Quattararo was in the same boat. You know, he's going slower than last year. So then you add in the Dean's question about going back to the old settings. And it sounds like what Quattararo is saying is we're trying all these new directions, but actually we're not seeing a clear way forward. And we're going back to what we, you know, what we, we feel comfortable with. And I think he's actually said, we're going to keep it like that now. That's the setup. That's the base setup anyway. And I'll just have to ride around the problems. But you know, when you're in a position where you're trying to catch up to the other manufacturers, that's going to be very difficult to do, isn't it? When you when you keep stepping back, it's not really possible to catch people by stepping back, is it? And uh, yeah, you know, they really need something, don't they? They need some breakthrough. And I don't think it's going to come from 21 settings. They need concessions, Pete, really, don't they? They need to be back. They need to go backwards to go forwards. Um, and in that scenario, you're likely to lose the likes of Quattararo to somewhere else. You know, it's... Um, it's going to be a very interesting set of rules coming up in for 2024. That's for sure. I can't wait to see how the you know the manufacturers' association get together and agree on what is the format for rules moving forward. Mm, definitely. Um, well, thank you, Dean, for that. Uh, let's go to Ryan now. Quick question for Keith. And a video popped up on my feed the other day of Thomas Golob being punched off his motorcycle by Craig Boyce in the World Speedway Finals, which Keith was presenting. Is that the craziest or strangest thing you've seen in motorsport over the years? Or is there anything MotoGP or otherwise that tops that? 
And by the way, save Wolf Speedway, who looks set to lose their home at the end of the season, with the stadium owners prioritising Greyhound Racing instead. Bit of a Speedway question there. Well, Boise, Boise managed it quite well because he managed to get his fist in a shape that he could get it through the aperture of um, Golov's um, <laughs> he helmet. Because obviously he got his helmet on. So, um, and he knocked him clean off the bike. That was, I think, was that, that might have been at um, Hackney. The, old, the, the new old, because it only lasted, I think, a year, Hackney Wick, which, again, Speedway loses its... I mean, I went to the final of the Elite League um, teams thing in Sheffield at Owlerton, and they had, like, a 5,000 people there, and I remember the promoter, she was really happy that, that they'd had 5,000 people. This was a big deal. Bearing in mind, it was the final of the, of the Elite League year, and half the stadium was closed because it was condemned. Um, because you couldn't get um, people out of it in the case of a fire or something along those lines. So the whole back straight and area was completely closed. And the other area had this this wonderful building in it where you could eat and, and drink and look out across it. But Speedway funding-wise is why we see stadiums closed, is because they can't you know, make enough money to keep the stadiums going. And the dogs obviously get supported by the, some gambling regime. I think they get so much given to them by the betting offices or whatever it is to keep places going. Um, my uncle used to ride for Wimbledon when Wimbledon Stadium was a, was both a dog track and a, a speedway track inside there back in the day. So, I mean, I remember it when it was in its heyday and the, the terraces were full of people and speedway was in its pomp. But unfortunately now, even, you know, like I say, I was shocked at Allerton to, to see the, the final of the, the big one of the year and there was like 5,000 people there. And I thought that was not not many. Um, but the lady promoter, she was like over the moon with, with the, the attendance. So we all have our troubles and Speedway have theirs, um, unfortunately. Mm. Okay, Pete, what have you, have you come across any crazy moments in, in your line of work uh, in the paddocks over the years? <laughs> you know what? I think that one a couple of years back where the, 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 the Tech Tour rider got blocked by someone from uh, Biaggi's team leaving the mm. pits. I think that's up there. Yeah, yeah, in Moto three, you know, where the, where the mechanic came and that was last and, year, wasn't mechanics. it? It wasn't even a couple of years ago, wasn't that last season? Yeah, oh, yeah, sorry, last year, yes. Um, yeah, again, I think wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, think that's right. there, just for things you don't expect to see at, at, at a motorcycle Grand Prix. <laughs> well, you can you can go Romano Fanati when he grabbed the front brake of Manzi. You know, that was that was one as well. I mean, I think most of the ones that that I've seen that haven't been reported would be the the, the, the funny ones. Uh, you know, like you've got. <laughs> We always used to have these races, the, the, the two tracks back in the day. You'd always have, you know, the trucks and you'd, you'd need to try and get to the next racetrack as big as you could. I think I've mentioned this before because there wasn't enough electricity, it wasn't enough water. So you needed to be as close to these these outputs as you could possibly be. So you would race to get to the next track and all the privateers would be, you know, bombing along in their Mercedes 508 vans or whatever it might be with a row of eggs on the dash so that you could get to your neck and you'd see the guy next to you and just fire a load of eggs in there so he couldn't see where he was going. He'd have to stop and and one day this guy, I got my window down and didn't see this one coming from behind me and it came straight in and splattered all over all over my paperwork that was on the dashboard. And, and it can't be real. So I got, I got in his slipstream and followed him for about the next 150 miles or whatever it was, just kept on. And when we got to the next petrol station, he pulled in and I pulled in got my fire extinguisher and just fired like a whole load of powder into his truck. 
and and left left the plot with with, the, with this powdery coming pouring out of the windows of this thing. He was a mate of mine, by the way, a Swedish fellow. <laughs> Thank God. We got to Assen. We got to Assen, and he pulled up. And I've never seen a man madder. <laughs> that is <laughs> he insane. Take, he had to take the entire tri- the entirety of the of the truck apart to get every bit of powder out of it. It was in every every orifice. <laughs> he Doesn't didn't sound me. real. Can't believe that actually happened. What a oh, joke! Oh, there was the one where the, there was, I remember. There was a fellow called Phil Henderson. He used to have a blow up doll on the top of his truck, um, <laughs> and he used to have it inflated to a certain way that when he braked, it would sit up with that kind of startled look on their face you've probably not got one Harry um, <laughs> I just want to say if you're listening audio only do seek out the YouTube for, for the real reenactment of Keith's face there um. <laughs> you know, you know, I mean there were all sorts of stupid things that went on back in the day Brilliant. especially behind the scenes I mean it's mm. uh, it, it, yeah, it, and it's, it's amazing how they get embellished over the years as well if you've never been to one of Stavros's bloody parties then you uh, Steve, Steve's gotten to perfection now every mm. story has now got a perfect mm. polished <laughs> Steve, Steve Parrish, I'm talking about, yeah. folks. Um, actually, I think he's doing a lot. I think his mad tours have come to an end. I think he's, um, I think he's, he's finished um, doing his comedy shows now, which is a shame. Well, never say never. Maybe Not we can you. Kickstart. You, you can always listen to him on air. That's a comedy show. You'll <laughs> <laughs> say the same about you on the podcast. Uh... <laughs> I, I've worked with him on the Northwest 200, and uh, we've already had accolades. You've heard on this podcast. So I bet. I bet. Uh, well, look, thank you so much for all your questions. We haven't got through them all, but uh, we. Got, I want to end with this. It's not really a question, but I uh, remember Steve and Michelle from last week. Uh, Keith gave them a whistle-stop tour for their MotoGP tour in retirement life. They've gotten back in touch. And uh, a lovely message. As you pointed out, with time and age, we've also lost a few friends in the recent past. We're not 35, but 60. We're still healthy and love adventuring. We're American and moved full-time to tropical Mexico seven years ago. We started talking seriously about doing uh, this tour in October 2019. And, well, you know what happened after that. Uh, We'll keep you up to date and send significant pictures when we can. Hopefully, we can get to Silverstone and share some beers. So here we go. It's going to be fun. Steve and Michelle. So isn't that fantastic? They've asked if they should have a hash Hashtag, I think it should be hashtag Stephen Michelle, and we'll and we'll we'll find you and uh, get in touch on the email um, crash. What's the what's our email? Oh yeah, podcast at crash net. <laughs> Set enough times, but that was brilliant. So thank you, Stephen Michelle. Wishing you all the best uh, for that. Um, but that just about does it for this week's show. Thank you, Keith Hewitt. Thank you, Pete McLaren. As always. Uh, sorry if we didn't get to your question. We will eventually get to your question make sure you tuned in across crash.net for all the latest news and analysis across the week um now some news from us we won't be back next week uh due to things beyond our control uh for the time being we will be going to a monthly podcast so thank you very much for all your support and uh we hope it continues and keep uh abreast of social media our individual ones and crashes to to hear the latest news and of course what what happens with the podcast but we thank you for all your questions and everything uh you can still get them in and your comments just leave them in the the inbox on uh, the email or you can uh, just search Crash Motor GP on all the socials and you can leave us a review as well wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and we shall see you hopefully in about a month's time. But thank you very much. I've been Harry Benjamin and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.